1: Mark chapter 11, verse 15, is the call to confess our sins. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Thus far the reading of God's word. When Jesus enters the city here, the people are picking up palm branches, John tells us. And this was uh, Israel's national symbol of independence uh, and patriotism at the time. Many were looking for a strong king to revolt against the Romans. And they had their headquarters and their fortress, their military garrison, butted right up against the temple, which was kind of an affront to the Jews. So when Jesus comes into the city, he doesn't storm the Romans, as many expect. He goes next door, and he storms the temple first. It's a strong statement of judgment. That judgment begins with the house of God. We are quicker to see problems with the other guy the Russians, the Chinese, the Democrats, whatever it may be. But Jesus comes to purify his people and he goes and cleanses the temple first. What specifically got Jesus all worked up when he cleansed the temple? What was wrong? Well, people brought money to buy sacrifices to worship. That was allowed in the law. But the money changing had entered the Gentile court. The place meant for worship and prayer for the Gentiles was being used for their commercial transactions. Jesus singled out the the pigeons, it said in this uh, translation, the dove sellers. It was the poor who bought those. The temple rulers with their monopoly were shoving aside the Gentiles and the poor to get a bigger cut for themselves. So Jesus calls his temple a house of prayer for all nations. It's a quote from Isaiah 56, which speaks of the Gentiles coming to worship God. And Jesus says, you're shoving them out because you want a bigger cut for yourselves. The, money, the rulers were letting the money changers charge exorbitant prices and taking a cut for themselves. So Jesus calls his house a den of thieves, quoting Jeremiah 7. Quite a, a powerful statement Jesus makes in word and in deed. But we long for a king, for grace, for the kingdom of God to come. Uh, but when he does come, he's going to call for adjustments in how we live together as God's people. So let's give all laud and honor to our king, Savior, who brings us forgiveness of sin. And as part of that, grant him every right to reorder and to cleanse our lives of remaining sin. Let's confess our sins before Almighty God. Please kneel if you're able, and I'll pray our prayer of confession to you. Take out your Bibles, if you would, and let's turn back to Mark. What I'd like to do is turn back to Mark 12, where we just left off, and begin there. Let's uh, pray as you're finding that. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you as we uh, prepare to read it once again and uh, to hear it preached, that you have given us this uh, way to draw near to you, uh, to be taught by you, uh, to... Uh, receive revelation of you, for you have been gracious to reveal yourself. Uh, And there are many words in this book, many truths. Help us, Lord, to love you with all of our minds, with all of our heart in in this moment. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we just left off in Mark 12, uh, the parable of the tenants. And what I'd like to do is, uh, I'd like to track the events of Holy Week as we go through. Uh, So, but there's never enough time. There's never enough services to cover it all. So let's just page through if you have a Bible or scroll if you're on your phone maybe. Uh, Mark 12, uh, after this, there's more teaching you see. uh, Paying taxes to Caesar, the resurrection question. Uh, They ask Jesus questions. And then we page on chapter 13, Jesus foretells about the destruction of the temple. They're going back and forth, remember, from within the city. And then they walk outside of the city to their hotel, quote-unquote, for this multi-day uh, festival of Passover. So they're going in and out of the city every day, every night. And, and so Jesus foretells as they're looking at the skyline of Jerusalem. He foretells that it will fall. And they wonder about that. Jesus teaches about that. Then you, in chapter 14 you have the plot to kill Jesus. He's anointed at Bethany. They celebrate the Passover with the disciples in the upper room. Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. He foretells Peter's denial. Uh, Judas goes out uh, to, the, uh, to betray Jesus. And that's where we're gonna pick up the text at chapter 14, verse 32. And we'll read from there to verse uh, 52 for our, the rest of our sermon text today. Hear God's word, Mark 14, 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. The grass withers, the flower fades, but this word of God stands forever. And God's people said, Amen. Well, as I said, there's about 24 chapters in the four Gospels that are devoted to uh, the events of Palm Sunday up through the death and burial of Jesus. That's a lot to cover in, uh, in one service, so I- I'm giving it a shot here, but you know, th- this is not going to be a verse-by-verse kind of thing as we usually do. Uh, what we're going to look at today is kind of a two-act play. Right. First we're going to consider triumphal entry, the events of Palm Sunday, God's Lamb Provided. And then we're going to look at the, this event we just read about, the, the shame in the garden, I, I'm calling it today. The shame in the garden. So first of all, first act, the Palm Sunday Lamb. Uh, when Jesus enters Jerusalem to the, the triumph, triumphal praises and shouts of the crowd, he's entering as a king. Uh, as we uh, prayed in the, in the uh, great prayer we had, the, the prophecy is Zechariah 9. Behold, your king comes to you. Riding on a, a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. To paraphrase, it's, it's hey Jerusalem, look, here he is. Your king is, comes to you. And Jesus certainly comes as our king. But the kingdom of God is different than worldly kingdoms. Jesus is riding a lowly donkey. Not the, not, not the horses that the Romans would have, not the chariots and the fanfare like that, but on a lowly donkey. And he stops halfway through the procession. This isn't in the account we read here in Mark. It's in other Gospels. And he stops and weeps. He weeps over the city. That's quite shocking. I mean, you have to imagine kind of what this is to the crowds. In our modern context, what this event really is is like a Republican Party national convention where they've just nominated their candidate who's going to run for the president and they're cheering and he's standing on the, on the stage waving. That's what this kind of moment is to the crowds. You're the one. You save us from those other guys. <laughs> it's that kind of moment. I mean, imagine if, if uh, Trump or, or someone else is nominated. They're standing up there waving. Everybody's cheering. And in the middle of that, he just stops and breaks down and starts sobbing. And he goes to the microphone and he says, you guys are getting it all wrong. That's the kind of moment this is. It's jarring. Why would Jesus do that? Because it's a different kind of kingdom. It's not what they're expecting. Israel didn't know what would make for their peace, is what he says as he he weeps. You see, the crowds have hopes for Jesus to do things that aren't on his agenda. And we should think about that a bit. Jesus enters Jerusalem about five days before Passover. Uh, which is the very day that God told Israel to pick its lamb for the Passover. We read that in Exodus 12. A king uh, with power is not going to make for your peace. A, A presidential contender with high poll ratings is not going to make for your peace, even if he has biblical positions on every issue. You need a lamb to pay for your sins before a just and holy God. So Jesus comes with majesty to his city, to his temple. But he also comes as the meek lamb who will lay down his life for us. And that's been uh, made clear ever since Jesus arrives on the scene at the beginning of the Gospels, right? He, He shows up by the crowds, and what does John the Baptist say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's his mission. That's his agenda, to be the Lamb. But the people kept wanting to make him a king. And sometimes he even slips away as he's, he's too popular. They, they, he's, they want to make him king, by force, it says. Uh, so we have to be careful uh, not to deny the power and the glory and the conquest of Jesus Christ the lion. That's also true. Many evangelicals tend to deny that today. Uh, but, uh, but never deny either the meekness, the sacrificing Jesus as lamb, Who lays down his life? We can forget that Christ's kingdom and rule and power are based on a foundation of service, humility, compassion, and sacrifice for those whom he rules. Palm Sunday reminds us of that, that we need first and most not strong earthly leaders, not political freedom from tyrants, which Israel badly needed at that time too. Palm Sunday reminds us that we need a righteous sacrifice that will remove God's wrath against us for our sins. I've been listening to some more R.C. Sproul lately on my podcast feed. He's always good on this point. He's got a simple, quick phrase. Salvation is of God and from God. Which is really cool. Uh, But unpack that a little bit. Salvation is of God means God's the one who gives us the lamb. Right? Only God can give us what we need to be saved. Salvation is of God. But salvation is from God. What are we saved from? We're not just saved from feeling bad about ourselves. We're saved from God's wrath, his righteous wrath against our sins. God saves us from himself and receives us in love instead. That's what the lamb does, the atoning sacrifice. Well, so the crowd was forgetting what day it was. Uh, that's one way to put this. They, they um, pick up palm branches, and this can mean a couple of different things. You, you can go a few ways with this. I mentioned the, it's kind of the national flag of Israel. That's one way you can go. They're, 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 there's too much emphasis on the nation being great again, to, to put it in our terms. right? They, they want somebody to get rid of Rome, make their nation great again. Uh, that's one way to go. Another way to go is to consider the uh, feasts in the Old Testament, the Feast of Booths. Uh, God says to Israel, "Make booths. P- take palm branches, and, and from those make make little tents and shade and, and booths, and and stay out in the wilderness, in in your backyard or in in the outdoors to kind of simulate what it was like to be in the wilderness." And that was the last feast of the year. It, it came to mean um, the consummation of all things. This is this is um, the, the last day. We're we're going to be back in the tents. It's going to be great. You know, it's, it's kind of the, the, the fall camp-out idea that you might have, that, that just things are all restored and put back how they're supposed to be. And it's a seven-day feast, seven the number of perfection. It's the last day of the year. So you had this idea that if the palm branches come out, if, we, if we're setting up tents outside, we're celebrating the last day when everything is set right again. They thought the last day had come. All societal evil of Rome defeated. Christ on his throne. Here he is. He's coming to his city. He's going to go to the throne, sit on the throne, get rid of all the evil. Today, Jesus is going to stop it today. Hosanna. That's the kind of hopes they have. That's the kind of hopes sometimes we have, right? The evil of Rome I mentioned. I mean, that, that reads like today's headlines, It was decadence, it was sexual debauchery and perversion, it was violence in the streets, it was culture wars. That was the evil of Rome. And it's the kind of thing we read the headlines today and think, Lord, stop this. But Jesus enters the city and he is headed for the cross to deal with the root of all of that. The root of all of that is our rebellion against God and his righteous wrath due to us. So, while we seek to take dominion of our world for Christ, there will be plenty of times where God calls first for sacrifice, self-denial, and don't mind the result for now. For a while, it's going to look pretty bad. It's going to look like a cross and a tomb, but don't mind that for now. Plant the seed, bury yourself, right? Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it can't bear fruit. The fruit may come later, but it will be glorious. Uh, Until then, things might look a little ugly, just a bunch of dirt there. If you plant the seed, where's the fruit? It'll come. right? So that is um, part one of our scene today. Israel's looking for a savior, they're looking for uh, a deliverer, but often from the wrong things. Uh, And sometimes we can be the same way. There there are... uh, good things that we seek in creation, like political liberty, uh, like health, uh, and so on. But if we seek those things primarily and above everything else, uh, then we're uh, putting something before God. We have to be careful uh, not to do that. So, uh, Jesus weeps because that's what they're doing. And because they're doing that, they're missing uh, Him, who He is, what He's doing. Don't miss it. Part two is the garden uh, story. So now, four days, five days later, uh, the, on the night of Passover, uh, Jesus is uh, in the upper room with his disciples. And remember again, this is in town. This is in Jerusalem, in the city. But the place where they sleep is, is outside, uh, in, probably in or near Gethsemane, on the Mount of Olives. So uh, they go out, verse 32, to a place called Gethsemane. So again, this is four days later. Jesus has cleansed the temple. He's taught these parables. He's spoken of the destruction of Jerusalem. And now in an olive tree orchard, a small grove, probably a farm, a small business that's producing olive oil with an olive press, uh, Jesus goes out of the city after the Passover feast to spend the night there. This was a common thing, I, they, um, the historians tell me, the olive press was something that was seasonal, of course, right? You're only doing that, that's only needed full capacity a certain time of year, and at Passover they would rent it out to people who were staying to worship in Jerusalem. So olive press is a nice, cool place kind of, that, that you can uh, sleep several people. So that's likely where Jesus is. Gethsemane means oil press, that's the literal Hebrew. So, uh, Jesus is spending the night there. Judas knows the place, right? He's slept with um, the disciples in this place the last few nights. But now, tonight, he's going to go and tell the, the rulers where that place is and bring them there. So, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John aside privately to pray. He sees what's coming. His soul is very sad, Mark 14, 34 says. A part of him actually shrinks from the scourging, the crucifixion, even more from the Father's punishment and forsaking him on the cross. He asks that this cup be taken away. But he also says, not my will, but your will be done. So, again, the setting is quite striking. But what does an olive press, an oil press, do? An olive press applies weight to the olives. The constant pressure over several days, even, is, is the way they worked. They would put weights on, uh, on, the, on the press to squeeze out the oil. And, and that's a, a great picture of what's happening here to Jesus, right? The weight of all the sins of his people bearing down on Jesus. And Luke says that his sweat was like blood squeezed out of him. That's what's happening to Jesus. The agony has begun. Now John, in his Gospel, calls this Gethsemane a garden. John calls it a garden, and that is interesting. That's why we read from Genesis today, the first Adam in the garden took fruit against God's will. right? Now the last Adam in the garden follows God's will, and he becomes fruit, oil pressed out to feed mankind. Jesus is faithful in the garden, not my will but yours. Adam doesn't say that, right? Adam says, my will be done. I'm taking the fruit, or I'm letting her take the fruit. Which one are we going to say? That's always the choice that's set before us. So that's one thing, taking fruit. There's several parallels here. In the garden also, you have a, a thing about sleep going on, right? God puts Adam to sleep, and the result was Eve. But now the disciples are sleeping in an unfaithful way. Right? They're unfaithful to the new Adam. Judas betrays him with a kiss. Uh, everybody forsakes Jesus, as he predicted. The end of the text is really fascinating. The young man who follows, uh, just a linen cloth on him, and you know, you've seen it in the movies maybe, that they're trying to catch the guy and he slips out of his coat and he gets away, right? Well, this is all he's got on, so he runs away naked. He's so willing to, so motivated to get away, he's willing to be naked to be able to escape, is the idea. A lot of scholars think that this was Mark himself. We don't know for sure. Uh, but if it is, he's making an interesting point. You know, it's hey, I was there too, and I was as bad as anyone running away, forsaking Jesus. So there's the taking the fruit, there's the sleeping, and there's the hiding. That's what's going on here, right? The, Adam and Eve, when God calls them and they know they're naked, they've sinned, they run and hide in the bushes. What do the disciples do when they realize Jesus is going to go uh, along with this arrest? They run and hide in the bushes. Both are forsaking God, hiding from God's way. That's us. We're we're in the garden. We're sleeping, we're naked, we're running, we're hiding. That's Adam and Eve, but it's all of us without the covering of Christ. But there is Jesus in the garden. See him, faithful, passing the test not taking the forbidden fruit, not calling down a legion of angels to protect himself, willing to lay himself down. So in that Genesis garden scene, we we find the shame of rejecting God's will, forsaking his son. But in Gethsemane, the new garden, we also find Jesus, the last Adam, standing faithful for all of us, even unto death. It's a great picture. Again, Peter, is probably Peter who's swinging the sword, gets it wrong there. And we, we often don't realize what's happening there. We, it's, the story is so familiar. But what is in Peter's mind? Why is he swinging and cutting off this guy's ear? You now we, We've heard that so often we just think, oh well, Peter had in mind to just swing and cut off the guy's ear. That's what he wanted to do. Probably not. Probably Peter was starting a, a revolt at this point. He's going to ar- resist this arrest. He's not going to allow them to arrest Jesus. And if it takes violence, he'll use violence. It's probably what Peter is doing. And Jesus stops it. Because he has to lay down his life. It's what he's called to do. Well, just a quick application and then we're done. Uh, What is going on here? What's happening as far as uh, our sin, our shame? Right? This is about shame in the garden. The, uh, The disciples... Uh, fi- are going to find it shameful to have their rabbi, their master, arrested. And it is a shameful thing, typically, right? We don't want you arrested. What are you talking about? It's like Peter back on the road saying, Jesus, you know, Jesus is saying he's going to be uh, crucified and rise again. And Peter says, No, don't. You don't have to be crucified. What are you talking about? It's the same kind of story. We don't want to go that way. And so sin results. Sin brings shame. It's one of the results of sin. Guilt we usually focus on. But shame is a real thing. And when we sin, we run from God and we run from others. That's Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes. Every discouraging headline that you've read in the last year of shootings, shootings, bad legislation, whatever it is, it's flowing from the result of running from God. You know, we're tempted tempted to ask after we turn off the news or, you know, throw our phones away, (laughs) like, what's going on? Or what is this world coming to? Well, what it's coming to is running from God. It's what we're doing. We're looking for help everywhere except where we should look. The Lamb that God provided on the cross. Good. All the the craziness that we see comes from that. We pursue the wrong things to save us from our shame, from our guilt. But God has provided Jesus, His Lamb. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Uh, Word, Thank you for revealing to us what happened to Jesus, how it uh, so directly and thoroughly deals with our problem, that we've rebelled against you, that we remain sinful, ashamed of our situation, hiding from you. And you sent Jesus, and he deliberately, willingly uh, walked into the jaws of death into a situation where you would forsake him uh, to atone for our sin. Lord, we are awestruck uh, and we, we turn, Lord, to ask how can we repay? We know we cannot fully. But how can we serve? What can we do? Lord, help us to see the story, to understand it, to apply it to our lives fully. Help us to lay down our own lives for one another, for you. Uh, give us grace, Lord, uh, to not go the self-seeking way. Always we lift up before you in the name of Jesus. And we, we sing. As we come to this table, we remember the wine represents Jesus' blood. His blood is the foundation of the covenant. All other sacrificial blood pointed to this cross, and it is shed for many. Not for everyone, notice, Jesus says. Not for whoever believes, and it's really up to them. No. Jesus goes to the cross knowing who his people are and laying down his life for his sheep. And he says he won't drink of this again until he drinks it in the kingdom of God. He points ahead from the crucifixion to the wedding banquet of the Lamb in glory. There's a direct connection. There's no paradise, there's no kingdom, there's no feast without the cross, without the blood of Jesus fulfilling the covenant God has made with us. So look to the bread and wine. Look to one another. Know the sweet union that you have with God in Christ by the Spirit's work mostly look to the covenant promises of God and to Christ who fulfills them. And come, for all things are now ready. We invite to the Lord's table all those who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and His body, the Church. As we eat the bread and drink the wine, we are acknowledging we are sinners, without hope except in God's sovereign mercy. We we admit that we are trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. So come and welcome to the Lord Jesus. The body of Christ broken for you
0: k-i-r-k-m-i.com. Again, thank you and blessings.